0: What we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue in our um, study of the book of Philippians in a series we're calling No Matter What. And in this series, what we're doing is taking a look at, at some principles of Christian living that Paul has laid out for us and the application of those principles that we want to live out no matter what. And today, what we're going to take a look at is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18, and we're going to take a look at how Paul tells us to hold fast to our faith. Now, before we start that, I I do want to spend a minute and just talk about faith. What do we mean when we say faith? Because there are a lot of beliefs out there that people place their faith into as far as what's our eternity look like? What happens when I die? How do I get to heaven? And, and there are certain beliefs that, that think that good works will, will be enough and will, 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 will gain you um, heaven. Maybe performing certain rituals or certain material things, maybe things we wear or put on our wall or have somewhere in our house. Living a good life or just being a good person. There are even beliefs out there that, Everybody just goes to heaven. It doesn't really matter. And unfortunately, none of those are true. None of those are true saving faiths. When we talk about holding firm or holding fast to our faith, what we're talking about is our belief in what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished for us that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and we believe in our heart that he, he rose, that we will have eternal life with Jesus, that, with God. That's what we're talking about when we say hold fast to our faith. That's the faith we're talking about. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through, like I said, Philippians 2, 12 to 18 today and pull out what I think are three important truths that that Paul is gonna lay out for us. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, I'd invite you to join me as we read through this. So Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I I mentioned a moment ago, I think there are three truths that Paul lays out for us here. And the first one that I'd like to introduce to us today is that our journey to become more Christ-like is a continual effort. Let's take a look. We're going to go right back to verses 12 and 13 for a moment here. Let's take a look at what Paul says. Again, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who, is, who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, In there, I suspect that some of you saw a couple of words together that kind of raised your antennas a little bit. Anytime we see the word works and the word salvation in the same sentence, we kind of sit up. It gets our attention because we just said that it was faith that saves us. So how can works and salvation be in the same sentence? What does that mean? And we're going to dive into that and pull that apart and understand that in a moment. But I want to back up quickly and... I want to give us a little context so we have a fullness of understanding before we dive into that that, that piece of scripture. Because you'll notice in verse 12, Paul starts that off with the word, therefore. And what he's doing is he's pointing back to the passage right before, specifically verses 5 to 11. And in there, we talked about this last week, we talked about the humility of Christ. Specifically, in verses five through eight, we see the humility that Christ came out of heaven, took on the form of man, even though he's God, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then we see from verses nine to 11 that as a result of that, God exalted him. So when, when Paul uses the word therefore, What he's doing is he's pointing us back, he's placing Christ as the foundation for our understanding and our study and our discussion of verses 12 to 18. Think of of 5 to 11 or specifically 5 to 8 as the lens that, that Paul is asking us to look at as we study this piece of scripture. And he can, Paul continues, he says, you know, as you have always obeyed, he's talking about obedience. Well, if we look through that lens of five to eight, what we see is the obedience of Christ. Not a human definition of obedience, not a convenient obedience, but a Christ-like obedience, that, that there's nothing off limits. That, that type of obedience is what Paul is, is talking about here. And as we read this, we see that Paul actually gives a praise An encouragement and a warning all wrapped up in one. Because you see the praise where he says, you know, as you have always obeyed, you're already doing it. You're always doing it. Good. Good on you. We we've talked about the fact that in Paul's letters to the different churches that he wrote, commonly known as the epistles, Philippians is the only one where he's not making a correction, you know, where he's not maybe admonishing folks. there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of encouragement there and this is a good case. Look, you're doing it and that brings the encouragement where he says, hey, keep it up. Keep striving. Keep working for it. But there's a warning and the warning is, we're not done yet. You're you're not done yet and that's where this, this discussion of works and salvation, work out your salvation comes into play. Now, to understand that, I want to first talk about what Paul didn't say. Paul did not say work for your salvation. He didn't say work to earn your salvation. He didn't say work to complete it or to keep it. He didn't say any of those things because you can't do all any of those things. They're not true. Christ died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. He then rose three days later, defeating death, His sacrifice, our salvation, is complete. It is sufficient. There's nothing more that can be done. There's nothing more that should be done. So we're not working for it. So let's talk about what he did say. And to understand that, what we need to do is we need to take verses 12 and 13 together. Don't pull them apart. Don't separate them. Because in verse 13, what Paul says, is, for it is God who works in you. So when God works in us, that then allows us to work out the salvation, the grace that he's put in us. And to help explain that a little more, I want to go to John 15, verses 4 and 5. And for those of you who are familiar with that passage of Scripture, that is actually the night that Jesus is betrayed. He's in the upper room with with the apostles. And he's giving, it's commonly known as the final discourse. And, And let's just read that together for a moment here. And and this is Jesus talking. He says, abide in me. Abide or live. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Because Christ lives in us, what we call an indwelling, he lives in us, we can work out or live out the grace he put in us, the salvation that is it is in us. Okay? It's not working to be saved, it's not working to stay saved, to keep our salvation, that's done. That's done when we believe by faith that Christ is Lord and Savior. But what, what Paul is talking about is working to become more Christ-like. Every single day. And a few weeks ago, we actually went through uh, um, Philippians 1. And in there, you'll remember Philippians 1.6, where Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that, that because of that, because Christ is in us, he's going to bring all this stuff out. Interestingly, in Paul's day, the term work out, would commonly be understood to, to reference to uh, working a mine, whether it was you know, ore or precious metals or stones or anything like that. The, the, the common understanding of work out would be working a mine. What you're doing is you're getting all the valuable stuff out of it. So we, we can see now with that understanding that Paul is painting for us a word picture saying, look, the, the salvation that's in you, the indwelling of God that's in you, work out. Get all the precious, glorious stuff that comes from that salvation out of you. Work it out, every bit of it. Now, the truth is, that's hard. That, that is hard. That's difficult. Um, yeah, I'm a bit of a, a nerd, a bit of a geek, and uh, I, I like shows like Alaska Gold Rush. You know, for those of you who may be familiar with that, I think there's actually a couple of shows, you know, reality shows, where they followed some guys up to Alaska. And and in this one specifically, these guys, um, I think they started, you know, kind of around the time where the economy was going bad. And uh, I think they just said, you know what, there's nothing here. Let's let's just buy some heavy equipment, go up to Alaska and get rich. And as you watch the show over several years, initially, they weren't very good at it, you know. I mean they, they pulled up a lot of junk, but they, they didn't get a whole lot of gold. But over time, they got very good at it. And 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 the reason I bring that up is to 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 mine for gold up there, what you have to do is you have to go through tons, literally tons and tons, of absolutely worthless material. You gotta wash it out and get rid of it. So what you're left with is is the nugget. What you're left with is the precious gold that you're going after. And that's the same analogy. That's the same thing Paul is saying here when he says work out your salvation. Work it out. Get rid of all that junk. Get rid of all that stuff. Wash it away so that you're left with the precious, the precious result of your salvation. A uh, gentleman by the name of F.B. Meyer, he was a, an evangelist and a minister late 1800s, early 1900s. He ministered in both England and the United States. And he has a good quote that I'd like to share with you. I think gives us a little context on this. And what Myers says, he, being God, he may be working in you to confess to that fellow Christian that you were unkind in your speech. Work it out. He may be working in you to give up that line of business about which you have been doubtful lately. Give it up. He may be working in you to be sweeter in your home and gentler in your speech. Begin. He may be working in you to alter your relationships with some with whom you have dealings that are not as they should be. Alter them. This this very day, let God begin to speak and to work in will and then work out what he works in. God will not work apart from you, but he wants to work through you. Let him, yield to him. Let this be the day when you shall begin to live in the power of the almighty God indwelling one. Now, Meyer lived over 100 years ago. But the truth is that the problems that he, the people at that time have, people we have, the problems we have now, they're, they're similar. The things we have to work out, they're similar. You know, whether it's pride or anger, arrogance, sexual sin, greed, substance abuse, violence, gambling, it doesn't matter. They're all the same types of problems that we need to work out so we can grow more Christ-like. But Paul cautions us to do it with fear and trembling. Now, when he says fear and trembling, he's not talking about a cowering or a timid approach. We actually see several times in Scripture where the knowledge of God you know is associated with fear. matter of fact, proverbs nine ten talks about the begin- fear of God as the beginning of wisdom. so What Paul's talking about when he says, do this with fear and trembling, he's talking about a sense of awe, a sense of respect, of seriousness. And again, let's go ahead and back and put that lens of Philippians 2, 5 to 8 on, that humility of Christ that we want to look through as we understand this passage. When we look through that, we we see what, what Christ did that we might be saved from our sinfulness. We can't take our relationship with him lightly. We can't take the work, the effort that requires to work out our salvation. We can't take that lightly. What we can do is because of him, because he works in it, we can do it seriously and confidently. Now, the second point that Paul makes is the only way to make a difference is to live differently. Now, before you circle my name and write Captain Obvious next to it, let's, let's see what he has to say in verses 14 and 16 so it'll make a little <coughs> more sense to us. So in verses 14 to 16, what Paul says is, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. <clears throat> Fact, we're grumpy people. Every one of us. We're grumpy, we're fuss, we complain. That's, that's who we are. It's part of what we do. And, and whether it's disputes that are out loud or whether it's you know, murmuring and grumbling under our breath, Paul says, look, if you're doing it, knock it off. If you're not doing it, don't start. Because grumbling, infighting, disputing, conflict, all they do is they they destroy unity. They introduce a conflict that didn't exist beforehand and doesn't need to exist. As a matter of fact, if you've got the gift of grumbling, what Paul's saying is, add it to that list of things to work out with fear and trembling. But when we look at Again, let's put the lens on of of verses 5 to 8. If anybody ever had a claim to be grumbling, it would have been Jesus Christ. Blameless, perfect, never sinned, went to the cross to a humiliating death and a physically excruciating death For the sole purpose that through faith we might be saved in him. If anybody had a right to grumble, it would have been him. Yet as we read through the the accounts of his arrest and his trials and his crucifixion, we don't see any of that at all. So the question comes up, if our goal is to become more Christ-like, why would we possibly do something that's the exact opposite of what he modeled at the time that he sacrificed for us? The truth is, grumbling and disputing, it is nothing more than distraction. Nothing gets worked out. nothing gets solved. Nothing's better from it. It's a distraction. It's a distraction to prayer. When we're sitting there trying to lift up in fervent prayer others, we're sitting there in prayer, trying to discern things. but we're fussing about somebody or something that happened. It's a distraction. Bible reading and the study of the Bible Bible being the main way that God speaks to us and we're trying to understand what he's telling us but we're distracted because we're fussed up with somebody else it's a distraction fellowship like we're bent out of shape with somebody we haven't worked it out we're grumbling about what somebody did or said or didn't do or something they got that we didn't get It, it, it destroys our fellowship but most tragically most tragically Grumbling and disputing disrupts our ability to share the gospel. There is an absolute need to share the gospel. Paul talks about a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, that's, that's actually a common term in, in, in the Bible. We hear the Israelites were described that way as they wandered for 40 years. Now, I didn't ha- I, it really wasn't rather pointless for me to do a whole bunch of research to show you some examples up here today of how the world is a qu- twisted and broken generation right now. Because you know that. That would be kind of a useless activity. We understand that pretty well. What's interesting is that in the original Greek that Paul wrote in, the word for twisted is the word skolios. Now, I don't tell you that to impress you that I know how to speak Greek, because I don't. But... If if you're familiar with that word, you'll you'll recognize that as as the root of the English medical term, scoliosis, which is a twisting of the spine, a distortion of the spine. Now, scoliosis can be relatively mild and correctable, or it can be completely disabling. In in the most severe of cases, the, the spine twists and distorts to the point where it takes up space in the chest cavity and the lungs don't function properly. The reason I say that is God has a design for us. He has a design for the relationship between us and him. He has a design for the relationship between us. But when those relationships are distorted, when they're twisted, when they're crooked, when they're bent, it doesn't function properly. The world needs a savior. Each person in the world needs a Savior. And thankfully, through the grace of God, we have one, one and, own, one and alone, Jesus Christ. But too many people don't know him. Or they have a distorted view of him and don't understand who he is and what he did and what he accomplished. Maybe they've heard of him, but what they heard was a distortion. Maybe they've never heard about having a personal saving relationship with him. We've talked about the, the statistics in Platt and, Platt and Clay Pout, County. Excuse me. 280,000 people is the estimate do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They need to know who he is, who he truly is, and what he accomplished, and what faith in him can accomplish in us. The problem is you can't share effectively if you can share at all when you're grumbling and complaining, and that's one of the things that Paul's getting at. Because a life with Christ as our Lord and Savior, the only thing they can do, it can, it can create a transformational change in who we are, what we think, how we live. But you can't show that a life with Christ is better or that a life with Christ is different if it in fact isn't different. If there's no change in us, if, if we're not actively working out our problems in a serious way, if we're just blending in and getting along, we don't stand out as a light. You know, Paul talks about the fact that holding fast to our faith. And, and what he's talking about, the way I would describe it, is just a, a white-knuckle grip like, like, I'm holding on to it so hard that my knuckles are turning white. And nothing is going to pull it away from me. I'm not letting go of this for anything. That, that, that's the no matter what that we're talking about here. Because when you hold fast, you stand out. Now, let's be clear about holding fast. Let's just kind of break it down a little bit. In the most simplest of terms, it is that we are uncompromising on biblical truths. An example, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a biblical truth that we must be uncompromising with. So if someone comes and says, Yeah, but there's a different way, we can't compromise and say that's okay. Okay, That's holding fast. That's holding fast. Now, I want to be clear about this. When I say uncompromising, we're not talking about being judgmental. We're not talking about being hateful. We're not talking about being insincere or not caring about folks who don't know Christ, even if it's in an extremely egregious way or they're really hard to get along with. What we're talking about is we hold up those biblical truths with, with, with white knuckles. We're not letting them go so that people can see it and they can hear it. That's what we're talking about. Now, when you do that, you do shine as a light, and the fact is you shine a light on yourself, And sometimes that light is unpleasant. And sometimes that light is difficult. Let's take a look at Paul. I mean, for him it was particularly unpleasant and difficult. Just in the city of Philippi alone, we know that Paul was beaten with rods, he was imprisoned, and he was run out of town. For Paul, holding fast no matter what meant getting beaten with rods, thrown in prison, and run out of town. But he talks about it as he uses the word pride. Now, this isn't a selfish pride or a boastful pride of, hey, hey, look what I did. Look at those guys. That's me. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is a joyful pride. Hey, look, those are children of God. They held fast no matter what. The beatings, the prison, the suffering, being hungry, being cold, being in fear of my life, None of it was wasted because now they're children of God, and they're bearing fruit for his kingdom. He said nothing was in vain. Nothing was wasted. It was all worth it. That's what he's talking about, being pride, being, having pride that he, he didn't run in vain. And that's the joy that Paul is speaking about and why he speaks with such joy in verse 17 and 18, which leads to our third and final truth that we're going to look at today. And that is that we will experience true joy if we hold fast to our faith, no matter what. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say here in verses 17 and 18 quickly. Paul says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should all be glad and rejoice with me. Now, pretty pretty easy to see the the theme in these two verses. He uses the word joy twice. He uses the word rejoice twice. I think think joy is probably a pretty good theme in there. But when we think about sacrifice, because when he says a sacrifice, he's not talking about like, hey, I sacrificed my time or I sacrificed my effort or, you know, it was really hard. No, he's talking about being sacrificed. And you put the word joy with that, and it seems a little weird. You know, maybe need to unpack that a little bit. So what he's talking about here is, is the Old Testament ritual of, a, of an offering where you would bring the sacrificial animal, you'd, you would slaughter it, and, and it would be burned over an open flame. And part of that offering would be a glass of wine that in two ways you could do it. You could pour it out on the side, on the ground, or you could pour it out over the top of the offering. And interestingly, pagans, had, pagans at the time had rituals very similar like that. So whoever he was talking to Philippi would, be, would understand the context that he was talking about here. But, but we go back to, that's kind of weird though. Why would be joyful in, in, in being sacrificed? But again, we go back and we put on the lens of verses five to eight, and we see that Paul is modeling the humility and the service and the sacrifice that Christ modeled in five to eight. For a second, just, just picture a large side of beef on on a uh, on an open flame, which I, I know is a little cruel to say to you at 11:30 in the morning, but um, just picture this thing up there, and you're going to take a glass of a uh, glass of wine, and you're just going to pour it over the top of it. And you know, depending on how much alcohol is in it, you know, some of it's going to kind of flame up. You know, the rest is just going to go up in a mist. It's going to be gone. You know, it's going. It's gone. And what Paul is saying is that even if that's what it comes to, even if I'm a complete it's all worth it. None of it was wasted. It's Every bit of it is joyful and good. It's worth it so that the Philippians can grow in their faith. They can grow more Christ-like to be blameless, without blemish before God. That's his focus. Paul's describing this deep desire, what I'll call a no-matter-what desire for others. In this case, the Philippians. Because look how he compares himself in relation to the Philippians and the sacrifice. The Philippians are this big side of beef, and he's a little glass of wine, You know, and he's just gonna get kind of poured on and and, and it it's it's the focus is completely on the Philippians. This is for you, this is how much I care for you. And and Paul takes joy that his service and his sacrifice was for their faith, that it was for them to grow more Christ-like, that it was for the fruit that they would turn and bear as well, and it was for their eternity because of their faith, the proper faith. A true definition of faith. He's saying, look, there's nothing that could make me happier. There's nothing that could bring me more joy than to see you blameless and innocent before God. He's saying, don't be mournful. Don't be sad about the fact that that I sacrificed, that I went through the sacrifice. Be joyful in what the sacrifice accomplished. Share in that joy with me, and then share in that service and that sacrifice with me as well, as lights in a crooked and twisted world. We, well, we had a great worship, time of worship this morning. And, and those those words just rang, those lyrics just rang so true. We have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross. Even though we are sinful, each one of us, he went to the cross to serve as a perfect sacrifice for each one of us that when we believe that he is Lord and that he rose, we believe in that faith, we hold that faith, we are saved, we can have eternal life with God in heaven. Look, if you've never heard that before, if you've heard that but you've got questions or you're not quite sure, Please don't leave here today before we talk. This is important. This is eternally important. I I will stay all day. I'm sure Pastor Derek, I just volunteered him. He'll stay all day, okay? Anybody else want to get, James will stay here all day. Turn your head because I'll volunteer you too. Look, this is important. This is eternally important that we understand this, okay? If you've got questions, don't leave here today without it, without asking and talking about it. Let's go to prayer for a moment. God, we just just love you. We love you for who you are and what you've done. That despite our sinfulness, despite our our just turning away from you, Lord, you desired a relationship with us and, and gave us a way through Jesus Christ. Lord, we just praise you and thank you for that. But we also thank you for your word that we could read into and understand those things that you're teaching us, that number one, we could grow to have that relationship with you, but then we could work it out. We could work out every precious, glorious piece of that to grow more like Christ, to enjoy a relationship with you and to lead others in a relationship with you. It's in your heavenly and precious name that we pray. Amen.